it doesn't happen overnight and you've got to push it and keep moving and keep moving forward. But it's so important to have that momentum of people moving forward and, and bringing the whole team together and, and pushing the staff and everybody really being there for a common goal. So that's what we're trying to achieve at, at Porcine and so far so good, you know, it, it's, it's fantastic. This is The Crackling. I'm Anthony Huckstep. Nose-to-tail butchery has become a real feature of the offering of chefs across the world ever since Fergus Henderson brought the approach to a wider audience. But as much of the world moves towards pre-butchered meat for efficiencies in kitchens, some, like Nick Hill, are finding rewards in whole beast butchery and the versatility it offers. Nick, you have a restaurant called Porcine. I can't believe we haven't had you on the crackling yet. Tell, tell us about the idea behind the restaurant. Uh, well, I mean, the restaurant sort of came very organically, actually. Um, the idea for the restaurant was based around French cooking, French bistro cooking, um, but it's very broad French, I suppose. Um, and, and a lot of that pâté and charcuterie work that sort of we really love doing has come from from the pig. So it sort of seemed fitting for us to to do it and, and name it Porcine, being to eat like a pig or to be piggish anyway. So it kind of just fit in as it was. Um, and uh, one of my business partners, Harry Levy, we just sort of met through Toby Wilson, actually, a guy who runs Rico's Tacos. We all played golf together one day um, and had a couple of beers and just got chatting and Harry was sort of asking if, if I wanted to do a restaurant. We'd, I'd just finished at the Fitzroy and was in a bit of limbo. So... Um, yeah, it, it just came about very organically and through my other business, Smoke Trap Eels, I was doing some masterclasses with Mike Benny at PNV in Newtown uh, and this, this cool space came up in Paddington above the new shop and like at first it was an idea of like, oh, do you want to do a residency for a month or something? And then when we saw the space, we were like, oh, no, we want to take the whole thing. So, I mean, it's one of those buildings has beautiful bones. It was Mickey's Cafe for like 25 years. Um, you know, it was known for doing big, dirty milkshakes and burgers and people loved it. And it was apparently like a, um, a cop hangout. All the cops used to go there. Um, yeah, there's some wild stories. Like the kitchen is amazing. Like, I mean, I came from sepia, which was an unreal kitchen, state of the art. And like that beautiful hallway, I think, you know, it quite well, that sort of long kitchen. And it's not too dissimilar because there was a mysterious fire at Mickey's 13 years ago. And then now there's like return air and all beautiful steel cladding and so much equipment that we just walked into a little gold mine. So um, Porcine's, it's, it's really well kitted out and it's just got this beautiful little room upstairs where we have a working fireplace and these beautiful bay windows that open onto Oxford Street plus a balcony. I mean, it ticks all the boxes for us. So yeah, it's, it's, it's been a short little ride until now, but everything's going really well. A couple of decades ago, French bistros were a real feature of the culinary landscape in Sydney and Melbourne, and then a lot of other cuisines muscled in, but there's been a real renaissance. What's it been like for you exploring um, French bistro food? Yeah, I mean, I I was like, I guess I was a pup then, and I I ate in all those restaurants. I loved them all. Um, And even like Top End was very French. It was white tablecloths and, you know, like Est and Bank and all those sort of restaurants were like, for me, huge when I was I was young. So I guess for me, French cooking never really left my sights. I, I really loved it. And I trained at Bathers Pavilion for four years, pretty much my whole apprenticeship. And that was very French, you know. So I, I, I sort of always stuck with that that kind of idea and, and that sort of thing. And, um, you know, working very fine dining, 
the places like CPU and the library and that sort of thing hones your skills. But I kind of always wanted to do something in that bistro realm that I had had grown up eating and, and looking at in Sydney and it was the top tier then. So, yeah, I mean, it just felt quite natural to do it, do it now um, and, and, and to see it all coming back. And there's other awesome French places in Sydney opening up and that have been here for a long time and that sort of stuff. And it, it feels really good to see it because I love that kind of food. You mentioned Bather's Pavilion. Take us back to that time. Do you remember your first day and, and what it was like working in that kitchen? Um, not necessarily my first day. I, I look, I remember getting the job. I went for, they used to do like, let's do lunch. And you could go and have like a main course for 30 bucks and a glass of wine. And I went with my mum and she pressured me to drop my CV in there. So I remember going through and a guy, uh, one of the sous chefs, David Tinker, he took me around for a look around the place. And I was like blown away, man. It was unreal. You know, such an amazing operation. Um, and then I ended up on the breakfast line actually. Um, and just flogging out eggs and then I was the staff cook for a bit and then I did a bit of pizza and um, it was just wild. Like thinking back to that time, even some of the food at the Bathers Cafe then, I love it and we replicate dishes at Porcine. You know, I think it's 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 really cool and I wouldn't say ahead of its time. French cooking's timeless, I, I feel, and, and some of that stuff is really traditionally well done there um, and I still take inspiration from it. I loved it. You mentioned sepia uh, with Martin Ben and also uh, the library with Brett Graham. What's been some real key moments and, and venues in your career that's helped shape uh, you as a chef? Um, yeah, def- definitely those two. I think the first one was after Bathers, I moved up to, to Brisbane and worked for Philip Johnson at Echo Bistro for a while. Um, and, and Echo had like, they took out, I think they did Gourmet Trailer Restaurant of the Year and they were like huge, you know, like it was big. And the whole country was looking at this tiny little tea house in, in Brisbane that was like it was an old tea warehouse that he turned into the bistro. Um, and I'd been at Bathers like picking the nipples off peas and doing real tedious work as an apprentice that I was like, that's just, I thought that was cooking, you know. And Phil was very laid back and he was always in the kitchen and always cooking and the food was just delicious. Like it was very simple. Um, and I think that bistro cooking probably led me to go like, look, it doesn't all have to be white tablecloths and bells and whistles. You know, simple and delicious was sort of, really Phil's way of cooking. Uh, I feel like I took a lot away from that. You know, he gave me a lot of freedom and I was appointed sous chef when I was just 21 there and, and, and given a lot of push and Phil was really helpful for my career, I feel, as to someone who just gave me a lot of range and a lot of freedom and be like, you know, you've you got to be your own cook in some ways. Um, even though you work for other people, you have, to, you have to keep your own mind about you. So, yeah, I mean, that was really a great part for my career being there. Um, and then moving from Echo straight to the library was like a huge culture shock, you know. I kind of thought, like, oh, I knew what I was doing and I would got this cool job in this great restaurant and then was, like, back to square one, you know. The library was um, – I think the library was probably the most pivotal point. Excuse me. And um, some of the hardest cooking I've ever done, you know. And I really learned to cook, cook there and, and properly cook. Um, that's sort of Brett's, Brett's real way of working. He's – He's the best cook in his kitchen and, and he really does. He cooks sections and makes sauces and he'll do everything from top to toe, and anything he needs to be doing. He'll, he wants to be the hardest working person in the business. Um, and I think I got a lot, a lot out of that. I mean, it probably took a few years off my life by working 90 hours a week, but <laughs> it, was, um, it was unreal, man. Like, yeah, there's, there wasn't a day where he wasn't, you know, 110% and really pushing and pushing and pushing and, and the, the – the way the library moved at that stage was huge. Like it was, 
every award for, you know, it was so highly decorated and um, I think it was 2010 or 11 when we got the second Michelin star. All that sort of stuff, that time was so important and I guess I didn't realise it until sort of a later on in my career. Um, but, yeah, I mean, it was fantastic, you know. Brett was just pushing the whole time and everybody was in there together. There was a lot of Aussies in there as well. I think at one stage there was like 10 Aussies and two Ponds. And um, it, it was just a really good, a great team. And some of the people who were there now are doing fantastic things all over the world, London and Australia and all that sort of thing. So, yeah, I, I think just like learning the drive of that place and how to push staff in the right direction was was so important, you know. It was about learning to cook and how to manage and think at the same time. It was, it was fantastic. Take us back to that time. Do you, is there any dishes or moments that you remember that, that really solidify what you took from that time? Mm, I mean, I, I did six years. So the first, I did three years as a junior um, and then I did three years as a senior after. So I came back to Australia for a year and then I went back. Um, like a sucker for punishment. But the first time was, was brutal. Like, you know, I was I was in there living in this, like, shitty one-bedroom flat and, like, there was just oh, like a bedsit sort of thing and, like, I had no money and I didn't really care. I didn't have any responsibilities in life. I had no girlfriend, nothing. I was just, like, all I want to do is learn to cook and this place is it. And I, I really gave it everything and it was so important and, and I, I was – I like to think as a youngster, I was I was getting, I was a pretty good cook by the end, by the time I left there. You know, I was really enjoying it, and um and I did every section, and I found that really important as well. So I did the the veg and the fish and the colds and the hots, and then I got all the way to sauce and did everybody. That was the big pinnacle of the kitchen to do sauce and meat during game season was huge. You know, and we did like every bird and Brett's a keen hunter, so you bring in like grouse with the feathers on and whole deer that he shoot with the, with the fur on and skin at the kitchen and. Yeah, like stuff that, I mean, you know, you don't really see that sort of thing anymore, but there'd be a brace of like, you know, like six braces of pheasants in the, ki- in the, in the cool room when you get in the morning. It's like, you know, you've got a big day coming. So, th- yeah, I think day to day, like there was dishes just rolled so quick there, you know. There was always something on the lunch menu and this on the dinner menu, and it was about um, moving forward and const- constantly cooking, you know, and very, very seasonal as well. Um, Brett was really into that sort of stuff. And I guess over there, the other thing is like, there is no asparagus for the rest of the year. That's it. You know, broad beans are in when they're in and then they're out. You don't get them. So, um, produce sort of forced to cook like that as well. Um, but I, th- I think the game part of it was really fascinating, um, for me to see it and, um, and, and cooking wise. Like anyone who worked there knows the mackerel dish that Brett always used, did and that would just, you know, burns the fingers and gets mackerel thrown at them and all that sort of thing. But it was, it was unreal. Like, you know, that's like, it's a, it's a 50 cent, 50 pen, 50 P piece of fish, but you know, you feel like your life depends on it when you're cooking four of them. So, uh, yeah, I, I think it was fantastic, you know, fascinating. Um, and then of course, butchery on the, on the, on the meat side of things was probably the first time I really saw pig that was treated amazing. You know, we were getting middle white pork in aged, dry aged and this sort of stuff. It was the first time I'd ever seen it. And it was just like fascinating, you know, Tell us about that time. Was it the first time you did sort of um, whole pig butchery and what impact did it have on you? Huge, huge. I mean, I'd done – at Bathers, we did rabbit and that was the first time I ever did like a whole carcass and it was really interesting to learn on a rabbit to see how it breaks down and how you use all the different cuts. Um, and then at the Ledbury when we got the pig, it was it was really interesting. I mean, we cut it different each week, which was, is something I still do now 
porcine, we try to change one cut each week and go, okay, can we get a tomahawk out of that? Or do we try and get the presser out of the shoulder or braise the shoulder or um, something different? So, um, you know, the whole thing there was just to, to, to obviously utilise everything from it, but we would cut the leg into individual muscles or haunches, as we call them, little haunch cuts, and the haunch would go on the lunch menu and the chop would go on at night time. And then the belly might get pressed and crumbed and used for a canapé or something. We would always utilise the whole part of the pig. Um, and, and it was it was really fascinating for me to see that. Um, and and then we did suckling pig for a while, which was really cool. Um, so we'd bone the whole pig out, suckling pig, and then uh, take the legs off and press the legs into where the rib cage was. So it was all one sort of almost even square of meat. And then we'd comfy the whole pig for 24 hours in pork fat and then press it and then serve it like a wedge, almost like a, it looks like a wedge of pork belly, I suppose, in that sort of slab. Um, but it was just all suckling pig, and you get all little cuts of loin, and belly, and and, and leg. And, yeah, it was fantastic. It was amazing. So, after your experience at the Ledbury, what was it like reintroducing yourself into the Australian culinary landscape again? Good. Like it took a bit of learning. I mean, I, I had I took no, I wouldn't say I was off, but six months I just did corporate catering with a friend just to sort of make a bit of money and just you know pump the brakes a bit because you know. I was, it was, it was 85, 90 hours a week. And after six years, like it, it takes it out of you, you know, and I kind of just wanted a bit of a break and to chill out and get back into it and sort of thing. And um, I moved back here with my wife and we just sort of settled down and, and, and took my time. And, and actually the building I was doing, the corporate catering is the same one that the CP is in, that the Commonwealth Bank building above it. So I just went downstairs and I think Brett, I, saw, I, I rang Brett and I said, I need a job, man. Like I'm going crazy, you know. So he introduced me to Martin and I went downstairs and spoke to Martin. Um, and I think it had just leaked that CP was going to end the lease, right? But so, so it, it looked like it wasn't, it was a short contract, but I thought this place is amazing. I really want to go here anyway. And I ate dinner and was just blown away, you know, like so sharp, so refined, so precise. Um, and, you know, it's at the, that same level as the Ledbury, but a completely different ball game. You know, Brett's very, hands-on and very cook and um, as much from scratch and whole animal, as much as you can really physically do yourself. Whereas Martin is just all precision planning, you know, methodical to the T. So it was, it, was, it was a totally different thing for me. So I think slipping into that sepia kitchen, it was tasting menu only as well, sepia. It was a levy would have like a la carte, lunch menu, tasting menu, you know, it was, it was all sorts. So um, sepia is very controlled. And I guess, like, I was probably a bit wild for that kitchen. I came from somewhere it was just like, rah, full pace, you know. And CPU was Mar- Martin's very, like, he's very chill, you know. He's like, who's this guy, you know. So, um, yeah, I think the first, like, my first week, I had to make something. And I just had this blender just, like, completely full and full wax. Like, and Martin was like, don't break, don't break my shit. Like, you're not, you know, you, <laughs> you don't need to do that here. <laughs> sort of thing. I was like, oh, okay, cool, chill out, you know. But, um. Yeah, I think it was just like, for me, it was, it was good to sort of, to see another part of it because the organisation part of sepia is really what made it such a, a sharp and immaculate kitchen, you know. It was, it was really, yeah, it was, it was really special. So um, I guess I sort of took a bit of a chill pill there and, and, and realised that there was, you know, ways of doing things that didn't need to be as involving um, for certain aspects of the kitchen. Uh, and, it, and it was a five-day operation. Levy was seven days, um, you know, and Levy was like, I think, nine or ten chefs, seven days, 12 shifts, whereas CPU was like five days, 15 chefs, 
five services. You know, it was like or six services. So it was like very, very different, very, very, very different kettle of fish. But I mean, amazing to work in both places, definitely. In your time uh, between Sepia and and where you are now, that you did a couple of things, including a pop up with Nino Zakali, and you worked at the Old Fitz as well, and and dabbling in sort of the food that you're doing now. What did you take out of those experiences as you built towards uh, Porcine? Um, I think like the most important was the fits. Like it was super humbling to cook that, and I was like, CP was like the right, the real top end of refinement. Like everything was looking forward and forward and forward. Of like, how can we make this into a sphere or something very intricate? Because I worked a lot on pastry with Martin. I was the by the time I finished the Ledbury, I was the head pastry chef at Ledbury and I did that for the last two or three years. And then with Martin, I focused on pastry with him a lot towards the end of Sepia. So um, the, Martin's pastry is very involving and, and a lot of, um, I guess, like magic or whatever you want to call it. You know, it's very whimsical, I guess. Um, so I got to that point where it was like you're always looking forward to try and discover something new. Whereas with the fits, it was like you're doing pub food. You, you look back at the, the simples and the classics, and I guess it sort of stems towards that bistro food in a way rather than that forward-thinking refinement. So, um, I mean, I, I love British pub food, and I felt like the fits kind of had that vibe to it a little bit. Um, and when I was in London, I lived above the Harwood Arms, which is owned by the Lebri. It's a one Michelin star pub, and I lived above it. So I used to go downstairs and have a pint of Scotch egg and, you know, chill out and it was, it was, it's just, man, it's the best spot. It's so cool. So I loved all that sort of thing. And then, you know, places like St. John and things, they, they're always influential um, to, to chefs in London. And, and I mean, it is everywhere, but it's the sort of place you just go and you're like, oh, great, beautiful. You know, it's, it's that sort of warm hug cooking, I suppose. So, you know, the fits, I was really humble. I realized that it doesn't matter how fancy you are. If you're in a pub, you make money off schnitzels and rissoles and, and the, and the stuff like that. So you've got to cook it really well and really put the same thought process as if you're trying to reinvent the new dessert. So um, it, was a, it, was, it was really interesting um, to do it. And even in a pub like that that's full of locals, like you can, you can be the fancy chef if you want, but they'll cut you down when you go into the front bar, you know. Like, <laughs> they don't care. <laughs> like, oh, look at this wango. You know? So I love the fit. I love the fits and, and the people in that pub and who ate there and that sort of thing was was fantastic. So, I guess um, doing that's not. I'm not even saying it's a step backwards, but it's a different style of food that's much more simple and relatable and homely for people. It, it's it's humbling to cook it, and it taught me a lot. You know, you know, you got some drunk guy on a Wednesday afternoon come and slag you off because your schnitzel wasn't you know as good as the fucking RSL or whatever. It's like, <laughs> what are you doing? <laughs> you can change twenty five years and work in Michelin star restaurants, but if he doesn't like a schnitzel, he'll come and tell you. So it's, like, it's pretty crazy like that. So I guess I learned, it was pretty humbling, man, I, but I really loved it. Um, I got a lot out of it, a lot out of it. You did a, a pop-up uh, with Nino Zakali. Tell us a bit about that project because um, pork really featured quite strongly uh, when on that project. Yeah, so the Milan Cricket Club was uh, this uh, idea Nino had and it was about uh, other palms cooking um, Bistecca Fiorentina for the, for the Italians when they went over to do uh, cricket because Milan Soccer Club and a lot of the big soccer clubs used to be cricket clubs in the early days, soccer and cricket club, football and cricket, sorry, football. And, um, yeah, so it was really cool. And uh, it, was just, it, was, it was something like I feel like because of COVID and that sort of thing, it was in that period, not that we knew we were going to have a second lockdown, but it feels like because it was in the middle, 
it's kind of like free reign, you know, you can sort of do what you want. And Nina had this space and it came through Martin Ben. So Martin rang me and said, oh, Nina's got this spot. Do you want to have a look at it? And like, I mean, it's in the Strand Arcade on the third floor. It's a beautiful, beautiful place to be. And um, yeah, I mean, we, we, we took sort of, Nina wanted to the Fiorentina. So we did like T-bones of pork and veal, beef, and then a lamb barnsley chop was the main course of the Yorkshire puddings. Um, and then the starters and everything else was like, I guess stuff we'd sort of done at the pub and was kind of popular. Um, and just tied it up a little bit to serve it to those people in suits rather than those with singlets in Willamaloo, you know. So um, but it was, it, was, it was really good, man. It was great fun. It was a cool time. And like I say, like that it was three months just before Chrissy um, after COVID. So people were kind of like pumped to be out. You know, it was, it was like it is now, I guess, but it just felt a bit um, – it was interesting, exciting. It was, just, it, was, it was like a wild idea that, that paid off. So, yeah, it was great. Um, Pauline – at, in its backbone is uh, relying on the pig for many dishes. What sort of connection do you have with producers and, and pig producers and how important is their role in what you do? Well, I guess for pig producers, I mean, we've been in action, I think it's 18 weeks because of, of this recent lockdown. So, I mean, and because of that, I haven't really actually had the chance to get out and personally see these suppliers, so to speak. We've been using Extraordinary Pork, who are just outside of Dubbo, um, and it's unreal. I mean, they're Berkshire pigs. They're really well grown and raised and fed, and it shows in the product. Um, you know, I guess the nature of business that you get stuck in the kitchen don't get out much, but it's almost like this sort of, I guess, unsung respect between the two. You know, we love what they do. They love what we do, and, and between that is, is, is really good. And, and also in between Extraordinary Pork and us is the middleman, which is um, Hungerford Meat Co., who are, um, our butcher and, and my business partner in Smoke Trap Eels, Michael Robinson. But, you know, the way those guys look after the product that we get before we get it makes a huge difference, you know. We've worked on hanging pigs whole carcass and then hanging cuts and then dry aging certain cuts and getting different parts of the pig. And that is really the finishing process is equal, equally as important as my job and the guys on the farm. So, um, you know, we're getting a lot of work in, into that sort of side of it as well. What what do you need from a pig to do what you do? Is there a certain amount of fat content or um, size? I mean, what what are you looking for in a pig? Yeah, I, I mean, like, like fat is flavour, as they always say. So fat definitely helps. Um, and pigs have had a bad rap all their lives, the poor buggers, and people say they're all fatty and gross and that sort of thing. But it is what it is. You know, we, we eat marbled beef and pay money through the nose for it, but a bit of extra fat on pork chop should be should be as equally respected, I feel. Um, we use pigs that are sort of between late, I'd say like 58, 60 kilos up to 70. We, we don't, they're not massive. It's also, I mean, I don't stand six foot tall, so I can't really butcher something that's huge. You know, <laughs> I'm going to throw that thing around, mate. Um, so we, we take the pigs split down the middle and the heads off um, and braise the heads with the bones. Um, and we're using roosters at the moment, so we take all the rooster carcasses and we make a big sugar out of that, so we use all those. Um, and the trotters and that. Um, and then we sort of cut depending on the pig, you know, if one's so, you know, timing is something you always look at to how, how long it hangs. So generally a pig carcass will be hung for two weeks. Um, and when they hang it whole carcass, it's kind of the gravity and the weight of the pig that helps it condense a little bit as it just starts to dry out and lose a bit of moisture. So it's like, you know, it's like a, a, um, a tighter piece of meat. So I find like if you get really average pork from bullies or wherever you get it, it's kind of flabby is the best way to describe it. And then when you eat that pork, it almost tastes wet and a bit like, well, it's not great to eat. 
Whereas pork that's been hung properly and looked after should eat like a good piece of beef. You know, it should sort of like tighten up when it hits the pan and wake up a little bit. And, and when you carve it, it should be juicy like beef when it just comes on the back end of the rest and it's got a bit of juice coming out of it. And, you know, pork doesn't have to just be the other white meat. You know, it's got a lot more to it if it's looked after properly. So, yeah, we look for all those things, the finishing of the pork, um, the fat contents in it, the size of it. Um, yeah, I mean, all sorts of things. We've started using a lot of sow recently, uh, female pigs, which is like, I guess, doubling in the dairy cow area if you relate it to beef. You know, it's fantastic. These are older pigs. They've had a long life um, and they've, all the muscles are very well developed. Uh, and we found that, you know, there's uh, the rack and the loin are all fantastic, but the neck chops. So just as you come up to the neck with the last two bones, the rib cage right sit up in the shoulder um we're sort of we've been dry aging those for up to six weeks and then we cut them into 500 gram steaks and they eat like beef i mean it's probably it's, i'd say it's probably the best piece of pork i've ever eaten uh, and we try to stick with that you know they, they don't come around all that often obviously there's more male pigs and female pigs um around and, and they're not going to sort of kill off the breeders so to speak uh but when they do it's it's a it's a real treat it's, it's an amazing piece of piece of meat regardless of whether it's pork or beef or anything it's it's yeah it's unreal there's pork dishes that are weaved all through your menu. Is, is there any sort of classic French um, pork dishes that you feature quite often on the menu that you can take us through? Yeah, I think the one that we we stick by the most, like we serve a chop, obviously, um, but the, the one we really stick by is um, is the crouton. And that was actually one of the first pâtés I ever learned to make at Bathers when I was like 17. We used to do it in a restaurant. And it's a Quebecois pâté, so Serge is from Quebec. So we always had like pâtés and terrines and that sort of thing. But the croton was on the cold starters on this like old assiette of terrines or something. I forget. I forget, man. It was, it was really cool. But basically you cook down uh, – We at, at the restaurant we mince pork shoulder and neck together. We find that's the best uh, way to, to get the right amount of fat to meat ratio. And we uh, house smoke all the, um, all the bellies. We make like a ventresh, which is like a lightly cured – Gascony style bacon, um, but then we hot smoke it really, really hard. So we lightly cure it and then package the pepper into the back of the onto the flesh side, and then basically make it into a hot smoke bacon. And we mince that through the farce to add seasoning. So instead of the salt curing the meat, you have a salted meat in there to help season it, and it lessens the amount of salt that you just keep putting into the food. So it's that that beautiful pork mince cooked down with uh, onions and spices and brandy. Um, and a little bit of chicken liver. Traditionally, it's pork liver, but pork liver can be hard to get and to get right. Chicken liver is just a little bit more consistent for the restaurant. So it's uh, it's cooked down mince, onions, brandy, spices, uh, and the livers, and then we take it off the heat and add creme fraiche and pork fat and whip it over ice. Um, and, it's yeah, it's really creamy. You serve it kind of cold, and then we just uh, put that onto bread. You just smear it onto bread. It's almost like a spreadable paste. But it's like the quintessential flavour of that farmhouse French cooking, that real pâté kind of flavour. Um, and it's something we, we won't take off. You know, it, it doesn't have the most appealing look to it, if I'm honest. And we serve it with boiled lentils that have been dressed heavily in red wine vinegar and mustard, like a classic French lentils vinaigrette and the pâté. Um, and it's just, it's really simple. And it is, you know, we don't, it's like one of those old recipes, we don't bother to refine you know, some things at Porcine, we put a lot of effort into making them a bit more refined in the technique side of things um, and a bit easier for service. And some stuff, we kind of just don't mess with it at all. It's just like really old school and you just tweak it ever so slightly and that's it, you know. So, um, yeah, I think the croton's something. We won't take it off the menu. 
and it's definitely a, a house and staff favorite. And um, yeah, a lot of a lot of people order that one. It's it's a no brainer. You've uh, only been in operation for about eighteen weeks as a as a restaurant with the random lockdowns and all sorts of things. But what's it like running your own business? Has has it surprised you the challenges that you face with? Yeah, it's unreal to be honest. I guess I've I've waited a long time to do it. You know, I was I worked for nearly eighteen years before I took a head chef job. So I've kind of my whole career. I've always there's always been this like little beacon of like one day, one day, one day. And then to finally be doing it, it's like, oh, we're here. All right, okay, this is cool. And this, a lot of it just happens organically. Like you kind of know what you're doing without knowing what you're doing, if, if that makes sense. We just, um, you know, like the boys who are on the floor, Matt and Harry are, are really sharp upstairs and, and we meeting every week and talk about every service and how we do everything, not dissimilar to any other restaurant, but it just seems to sort of all gel and work, you know. Like there's obviously the... You know, kitchen hand doesn't turn up at five o'clock and then you're on air task, you're trying to find someone and it's just a, you know, we've had those nightmares like everybody else and <laughs> we've had some, <laughs> for 18 weeks, man, we've had some crackers, but um, yeah, like we face the same challenge as everybody else. And I guess in some ways it's fun to do it. Like, you know, the dramas are all part of it. And as long as they're not dramas that send you under, it's something that's going to make you stronger. So um, yeah, for 18 weeks in, man, we're doing really well. You know, everyone's working really well. We've got great staff. You know, there's only myself and two others in the kitchen, um, and they were both with me at the Fitzroy. Abby came to the pop-up at um, the Strand as well. Um, and it, it's really sharp. Everything just seems to be working really well. The establishment is quite unique. It's a French bistro above a, a wine shop. Is, is there a relationship there um, in the operations of things and in regards to events and the wine menu? Yeah, big time. So we um, – yeah, we, we work really well with PNV, uh, and and da- downstairs, you know, part of the pool, I guess, with us is that there's BYO. You can just go downstairs to PNV and shop in the in the shop, and then bring it back up to your table and drink it, which is really cool. Um, kind of bummed I can't do it myself, but you know, someone's got to do it. So yeah, that, that's a great side of it. And like PNV is such easy people to work with. Um, you know, we make terrains for the courtyard for them. We started working getting oysters direct from Wapengo, which they have a little account for. So we're you know, we all sort of swap produce and help each other out and that sort of stuff. And back of house is fantastic. There's such great people to work with. So, um, yeah, again, it's happened really organically and been really chill. Everyone gets on and, yeah, it's, it's a bit of a dream, I suppose. You waited a long time to have your own business. What's the response been like from the public? Fantastic. Great. You know, and, then, and there's people like, you know, the, the Fitz was like a little shoebox kitchen stuck in the back of the pub. And a lot of the time I didn't really see people, you know, whereas the fits, they, uh, sorry, uh, at, at Porcine, a lot of people pop their head in or I'll go to the dining room and see them and you see a name on the reservations and you're like, oh, I think I know who that person is. And so there's a lot of people come out of the woodwork that are like, oh, yeah, I haven't eaten a scotch egg. And like one guy came to the door and he, he was going down to the to the theatre at the Fitz and, and we were reading the shit. And he was like, he goes, have you got my scotch egg? And I said, oh, you're this guy here just coming out the fryer. And they ding the bell to go down to the to the theatre, and this bloke just like bullfrogs his scotch egg in one hit, and you can almost see it sort of burning his throat on the way down the poor bastard. <laughs> and then like yeah, he rocked up to the door at Porcine one day, and he's like, "Oh man, I had a great dinner, thank you." Do you remember me and the guy that ate the scotch egg? And I was like, "Oh man, I always wonder what happened to that guy." <laughs> so no, it's really cool. People come out of the woodwork, and you kind of realise like, 
you know, in the kitchen you see checks and numbers and tables and you're trying to really focus on part of like the numbers of what you're doing and, and, and what the food is and lots of stuff. And it's, it's nice to sort of put your head up sometimes and take the blinkers off and see people. And it's, it's really lovely, you know, um, and being that it's our shop, we, we kind of have all that freedom to, to do that and go and talk to people and, and speak to customers. Yeah, it's, it's really lovely. Man. It's, been, it's been great. You've worked for some incredible chefs in some of the world's best restaurants and now you have your own restaurant that's part of the new wave of dining in Australia. What, what, what is it that you love about what you do? Um, good question. Cooking, man, I think. I don't know. Like it, It's one of those things that has just been a huge part of my life and for a long time it, it just is my life, I suppose. Um, but, yeah, like actually doing it, you know, getting in there every day and cooking and, I guess it's all the dramas, like all the stuff that you go like, oh, man, the veg didn't come in right, or that fish isn't right, or this is this and that's and don't have a kitchen hand. But at the same time, it's like, oh, how was the day? Like, oh, I remember that happened and we got that right and we did this. And it's about like problem solving and problem fixing and that sort of stuff and, and, and really doing it and, and cooking and being a part of it every day. Um, and I guess that stemmed from working for those people. You know, like the guys who I worked in the kitchen with, like Brett was in the kitchen every day, Martin was in the kitchen every day, Phil Johnson in the kitchen every day. And I learned from those guys directly that's how they ran the business and they worked towards everything and it doesn't happen overnight and you've got to push it and keep moving and keep moving forward. But it's so important to have that momentum of people moving forward and, and bringing the whole team together and, and pushing the staff and everybody really being there for a common goal. So that's what we're trying to achieve at, at Poor Scene and so far so good, you know, it, it's, it's fantastic. Well, Nick, we've absolutely loved having you on the Crackling today to hear a part of your story. Uh, good luck with the restaurant and um, keep in touch and we'll catch up again soon. Thank you very much, mate. Nice to chat to you. This is The Crackling, a Deep in the Weeds production in partnership with Porkstar. I'm Anthony Huckstep. Stay tuned as we catch up with some of Australia's best chefs and pork producers to discover what makes Australian pork so special.